Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. You're listening to Episode 1 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries, both supernatural and natural, anything that's strange, odd, or makes you wonder. In this episode, we'll be talking about ghosts. Uh, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today, of course, is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. I'm excited for this new podcast we're doing. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the about the podcast itself before we get into our our first topic. That uh, you know, why we're doing it, and why what you know why it's called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So what's what's this podcast about, Jimmy? Well, as you explained in in the opening narration, it's about uh, both natural and supernatural mysteries. I've been interested in like m- numerous people. I've been interested in the mysterious for a long period of time. I mean, basically all my life. And over the years, I've done a lot of reading about different types of mysteries. And uh, we're going to be talking about them here on the show. And we're going to be looking at them uh, from both a faith perspective and a reason perspective. We're not going to quickly dismiss things just because they sound strange. But on the other hand, we're not going to just credulously embrace everything either. You're listening to episode 271 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious experiences. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. This is a very special episode for me personally, because Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World began five years ago. Episode one on Ghost was released on Friday, August 10th of 2018. And in the years since, the podcast has grown. And today we're regularly in the top 25 documentary podcasts as found on Apple Podcast Charts. And we estimate that we have more than 100,000 listeners per episode. And with a listenership that big, some listeners will have had mysterious experiences. And some of you have contacted us and shared their experiences. And Jimmy, who is a certified uh, as a paranormal investigator, has helped some listeners figure out what could explain the mysterious things that have happened to them. To celebrate our fifth anniversary, Jimmy decided to ask uh, listeners to send in their mysterious experiences. And boy, did you all respond. And on today's show, we'll be presenting you with a selection of them. So what have Mysterious World listeners reported? What does Jimmy make of their experiences? And what could explain them? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin? Well, the first thing is that our listeners report having a lot of mysterious experiences. We only actually made the invitation to send them in twice because I was concerned about getting overloaded with experience reports. But wow, did people respond to just those two requests. When the written accounts, and we also had recorded ones, but when the written accounts were put into a single document, it was around 80 pages long, single spaced, and it would take four to five hours just to read it. Then, as I said, on top of that, we had experiences that were sent to us in audio and video formats. If I were to comment on each of the individual experiences, it could perhaps double the length of the episode, depending on how much I said. And I don't think that the audience is really up for a 10-hour episode at the moment. So to keep things at a more manageable length, today we'll be presenting just a selection of what listeners have reported. But don't worry, 
I have read all of the experiences that have been sent in, and I'm saving the ones that we don't cover today for future episodes. I even have ideas about episodes where we might use them. So this is likely the first in a series of mysterious experience episodes. Many of the people who sent in their experiences expressed a desire to hear what you would have to say about them. Do you plan to offer your own thoughts? I do, at least briefly, but I should give a couple of notes to explain my approach. Uh, First, I wasn't on the scene during or shortly after these experiences, so I haven't had a chance to do a formal investigation of them. And as a result, I can't come to any definite conclusions about the experiences, but I can offer a few thoughts. To begin with, I can usually say what category the experience belongs to, at least based on what is reported and how it appeared to the experient, that is, the person who had the experience. Often, people are helped by just knowing what category an experience falls into. I also may be able to comment on how common or uncommon the experience is reported to be and what some of the possible explanations for it are. This includes both normal and paranormal explanations. If I were doing an actual investigation of these experiences, I'd make a list of every likely possible explanation, starting with the normal natural ones. And then I'd work through them one at a time, like we do on other episodes of Mysterious World. For time reasons, among others, I won't be doing that on today's show, and I won't list every possible explanation. But I will say, if this has a paranormal explanation, here's what it sounds like it would be. I also uh, may list some possible natural explanations, but I won't attempt to be exhaustive. Have parapsychologists made studies of people's unusual experiences, even when they're not able to investigate them in depth? They have. In the 19th century, the Society for Psychical Research in Great Britain gathered accounts of unusual, spontaneous experiences that people were having, and they published them in collections, like the two-volume set Phantasms of the Living. Here in America, in the mid-20th century, people started sending accounts of their extraordinary experiences to the parapsychology lab at Duke University, which was run by parapsychologist J.B. Rhine. And his wife, Louisa Rhine, it is Louisa, not Louisa, uh, collected these experiences and published them, such as in her book, Hidden Channels of the Mind. More recently, the Rhine's daughter, Sally Rhine Feather, has carried on this tradition, such as in her book, The Gift, ESP and Extraordinary Experiences of Ordinary People. And I'm very pleased to say that I've been able to meet Sally Ryan, at least over the Internet, and get to know her a little bit. Uh, She's in her 90s, but she's still active and sharp as a tack. And she's part of a paranormal research group that I'm also part of, so I see her at online meetings. These collections of extraordinary experiences provide a useful foundation for researchers. Even if they can't all be individually investigated, they provide a data set of the kinds of experiences that people report having. Researchers can look for common characteristics they have and patterns they display. And they provide starting points for laboratory research by suggesting things that need to be investigated. This information is also useful for field investigations of spontaneous experiences because the field investigator can let people know that they're not alone in what happened to them and that they're not crazy. Other people have reported similar things. The the experience reports help field investigators find useful resolutions for people who are distressed by the experiences, and they help field investigators spot fraud, because if someone is reporting something that sounds more like a horror movie 
compared to what people actually report experiencing, it's a sign you may be dealing with a fraudster. So collections of experiences can be very useful, and today's episode is essentially a mini-collection of experiences that Mysterious World listeners report. Then let's begin. We are prioritizing those stories that were sent to us in audio or video format, so here's a video on an experience that Michelle reports. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. My name is Michelle, and I wanted to tell you about a mysterious experience I had. In 2005, I was engaged to be married, and my sister was to be my maid of honor, but she was deployed to Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom, and she couldn't come to the wedding. So about five days before I was to be married, I had a dream that I was picking her up at the airport. And I remember the dream made me very happy. So the next day I was writing her a letter and I considered telling her about the dream, but I thought if I did, it might make her feel bad. So I just ended the letter, P.S. I had a good dream about you. So I put the letter in the envelope, put it on my coffee table, and I kid you not, like just two seconds after I put it on my coffee table, there was a knock at my door. And when I opened the door, I saw my sister standing there in her desert BDUs with her rucksack on. And I was so flabbergasted to see her at my doorstep that she literally had to grab me and like shake me um, and to get me to react because my jaw dropped. And she's like, Mickey, Mickey, I'm here. It's me. And so um, one of the things I have always considered was Perhaps the fact that I had had the dream the night before, which would have been the time she would have been traveling from Iraq to the United States. I've always wondered if it was like a psychic premonition um, between my sister and I, because as kids, we actually used to play games where we would um, imagine something or think of a word and we would see um if the other could guess what it was um, and our success rate was like 60%. Um, so it could have been a coincidence, but I like to think that the dream was a psychic premonition um, that my sister communicated to me as she traveled to the United States for the wedding. Thanks. Love the show. Thanks, Michelle. Um, while it could be coincidence, it also could be a manifestation of ESP or extrasensory perception. ESP is commonly classified as coming in three different kinds, telepathy, precognition, and clairvoyance, which is what's behind remote viewing. Hypothetically, you could have learned about your sister's visit by any of the three. For example, you could have been in telepathic contact with her as she was making her way back, and that's what you incorporated into the dream. It's also possible you could have used precognition. You could have precognized the fact she was going to be there for your wedding. And it's possible you could have used clairvoyance. You could have remote viewed her as she was coming back and got that little snatch of information that you then incorporated in the dream of your reunion with her. Um, hypothetically, as I said, you could have learned about your sister's visit by any of those three. And it's often difficult to tease out which form of ESP is responsible for an experience. And this has led parapsychologists to sometimes speak of general ESP or GESP, um, that picking up information ha has been done psychically somehow, but th they've left it in a general category rather than trying to determine whether it was specifically telepathy, precognition, or clairvoyance, or some combination of them. This experience could have been any of the three, but to me it sounds most like telepathy or precognition. 
especially given the telepathy game that you and your sister played. However, if it was precognition, it would have been a premonition in a more proper sense. It sounds least like clairvoyance, since you didn't see your sister in the act of flying, but instead picking her up at the airport in your dream. But I'm glad that she was able to make it back, and congratulations. Our next experience comes from a listener named Bradley. Hello, Jimmy and Dom. My name is Bradley Ash. I hail from Northfield, Minnesota, and I have a story for you, a mysterious story for your fifth anniversary episode that I hope you guys find interesting. When I was, this was, this would have been my sophomore year or the summer after my sophomore year of high school, I went to uh, like a space camp and was helping out at that. It was a great time. It was on a, a prayer team is what it was called. So I was doing a lot of prayer. The leader of this prayer team, I wish I could remember her name, but she was this wonderful woman who was, you know, leading us and guiding us. Um, and yeah, we were, she was providing a lot of just, you know, very beautiful insights to us. However, the moment that the mystery occurred would have been, it was the Thursday night when we had a large adoration night for multiple hours at the camp. Really great experience. And afterwards, we were all gathered together, kind of sharing our experience from with all the people who were on the prayer team and had gotten to her. And she was uh, telling us about her experience during the adoration hour where she was praying and she wanted to pray a rosary. And so she went to grab her rosary that she typically uses. However, she could not find it. And so she used the back of rosary that she normally keeps. This is a rosary she had received from a sister when, like a sister of a, I can't remember what order it was, but she had received it as a gift. And it was something that was very special, very precious. The sister had passed away. And it was one that she kept on her often, but didn't really use a whole lot. But she went to grab it for this instance, and she had found intertwined within the rosary was another rosary that was the exact same of it. That wasn't there before, nothing like that. And so she now had these two rosaries that she was passed around and shown to us. And it was very interesting looking at them because you could tell which one was the original one because it was more worn and then the other one was like newer looking. And I remember, you know, as a high schooler, I'm sitting there just kind of like, whoa, this is kind of wild. This is pretty insane. And yeah, it was just a really cool experience that I don't really have an explanation for or, you know, thinking back kind of. Sometimes wondering, you know, was it, you know, really the case that this actually happened or were there actually two rosaries and she didn't realize it? But regardless, it was you know, a very cool experience, definitely bolstered my faith. So I suppose in that aspect, it definitely was, you know, good. And so, yeah, I thought I would share this story and yeah, I hope, you know, others find it interesting. You find it interesting. I would love to hear your thoughts on it, Jimmy. Thank you, Bradley. So in Bradley's experience, this prayer team leader went to find her backup rosary, and it was unexpectedly intertwined with a newer one that was otherwise identical to that first rosary. If this was a paranormal experience, it would be put in the category of apportation. An apport is an object that mysteriously appears. You, know, you can hear how they sound the same, apport and appear. Sometimes an apport seems to materialize out of nowhere. And the second newer rosary would be the apport in this case. Apportation is a somewhat uncommon phenomenon, though I have encountered it before. 
I know someone it happened to, and I've actually held the apport, which looked like a kind of small composite stone, in my hands. Apportation can be understood as being related to psychokinesis or mind over matter. In this case, the woman was not consciously trying to produce an apport, but she was consciously trying to find a rosary to pray with, and she was wanting to use a rosary other than the one her that the religious sister had given her, since she didn't normally use that. But she was looking for the one that the sister had given her, and then an almost identical rosary appeared. So perhaps she used psychokinesis to get one, or perhaps God or her guardian angel provided it, if this was a paranormal or supernatural experience. At the same time, we need to consider natural explanations, and there have been cases where it turned out that an apport was just an object that a person had forgotten about. I know someone who had a plumbing part mysteriously appear in a drawer in his house when he had a plumbing problem and was going to fix it. But his brother later reminded him that he had actually bought that plumbing part several years ago, but it hadn't been used because his brother fixed the plumbing issue, and so the part was just put in the drawer. My friend then forgot it was there and discovered it years later when a similar plumbing problem happened. So since the prayer team leader didn't regularly use the rosary she had been given, it's possible that she'd found at some point in the past a second nearly identical rosary and she put it with the gift rosary and then forgot about it and rediscovered it later when she went to use the gift rosary. Not having investigated the case, I can't say which explanation is the correct one, Though, in general terms, natural explanations tend to be more common than paranormal or supernatural explanations. So, if I had to guess, that would be my guess, but I wouldn't rule out a non-natural explanation. Our next experience comes from a listener named Brandon. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. My name is Brandon. I'm from South Texas, rural Wilson County, to be precise. When I was about eight years old, uh, it was during the springtime, probably spring break, so uh, mid-March. My parents were building a pipe fence, and there was a lot of noise, a lot of grinding sounds going on, and so I was kind of bothered by the noise, and I wanted to go play outside, so I decided to go ride my bike to my grandparents' house, which was about three or 400 yards from my parents' house. We live on a farm, um, open field with large pasture and a dry creek in the back. As I was driving, riding my bike through the field, I noticed a large black animal walking along the fence line, basically on, on my grandparents' driveway, walking the fence line with the brushes behind and the fields in front. Immediately, I thought it was our dog. We had a, a German Shepherd Lab mix who was basically jet black, um, and so I thought for sure that was him. So I had every intention of riding my bike up to go play with our dog. And so I ride my bike, and I get probably about 30 feet from the back of the animal, and I realize something's not right. It's not our dog. And so I yell, I yell at it, and I yell, hey. And the thing stops, and it turns, and it looks at me. And it's a big black cat, probably a, close to two foot at the shoulder, let's say maybe 20 inches, somewhere in that range, and at least four, maybe five feet long um, from nose to tip of tail. Uh, maybe maybe probably five foots closer there to tip of tail. And it turns around and looks at me, and I'll never forget, it had big yellow eyes. And as soon as it saw me, um, it darted and went basically 
over the fence. We have a, a four-foot-tall barbed wire fence, and it cleared the fence and ran right into the pasture. And uh, I was scared to death. <laughs> Being eight years old, I'd never seen anything like that. And I'd grown up on a farm, so we'd seen coyotes and bobcats and, and all, the, all the normal critters we have around here, but I'd never seen anything like that. And so I knew... I felt in danger, and I knew I couldn't make it back to my house, so I went to my grandparents' house, which was about 50 yards away. Frantic, trying to explain to them what was going on. They didn't seem to believe me. After a few minutes, I calmed down. I go home. I tell my dad. He goes looking, never could find anything. Fast forward many years later, I'm home late at night, and the dog is barking, and I shine out in the field, and there's another what appears to be large black cat in the field. Um... After all these events happened, we had talked with our neighbors. They had seen them, too, very large black cats. Uh, I don't know what they are. Um, if you look up, there are numerous sightings of, quote, black panthers in Texas. Uh, I have a couple theories as to what it might be. One is Texas used to have jaguars at one time. And uh, melanistic jaguars, that is black jaguars, when they breed in a pair, all of their offspring are melanistic. They're black. So one thought is that maybe there's a rogue population of melanistic jaguars that somehow have escaped capture or, or sighting in Texas. Uh, another thought, and I think this is this may be a little more likely, is a, an animal known as a jaguarundi, which is a small jaguar-like animal, but a little bit smaller, that tends to be either dark brown or, or like a charcoal gray color. Although the animal I remember was black, you know, maybe I, as a young kid I misremembered the exact shape. And then what I think is most likely is in Australia a number of years ago, a large feral cat was killed. It was a normal, you know, like cat like you have in your house, but it was a feral cat. And it was uh, found to be nearly six feet long from nose to tip of tail, like five or six feet long. And the guy saved the tail. It was a little over three feet long. And they did DNA testing, and it came back as a domestic cat. But it was a large black cat, probably about 18 inches at the shoulder, and five or six feet long from nose to tip of tail. And it was domestic cat, and feral cat. So I, I wonder if maybe what I and my neighbors have been seeing over the years are maybe very large feral cats or something else. I don't know, but I figured I'd relate to you my cryptid story from South Texas. Thank you, Brandon. Unexpected sightings of large black cats are also reported in other areas. For example, they're sometimes reported in the United Kingdom which is harder to explain because there aren't any big cats that are native to Great Britain. But we do have big cats here in the Americas. I think Brandon has done a good job coming up with plausible explanations for what he saw. So-called Black Panther sightings are indeed frequently reported in Texas. But despite the fact that there is a superhero named Black Panther, it appears there's no actual animal called a Black Panther. Instead, animals that are called that are either melanistic leopards or melanistic jaguars. Melanistic meaning they've got a lot of melanin, which is a dark colored pigment. And you can sometimes still see the spots on these animals because the animal isn't fully melanistic. It isn't fully black. Since Texas used to have a notable jaguar population, others have speculated that some may still survive there and that melanistic versions of them are responsible for some of the sightings of black big cats in Texas. It's also possible that dark-colored jaguarundis are responsible for some of the sightings, and since people aren't great at estimating sizes, it's also possible that 
unusually large black house cats, which, you know, belong to the species Felis catus, are responsible for some of the sightings. I'd also like to mention one other possibility, which is escaped animals. You sometimes hear stories about circus transports crashing and letting animals out into the wild, and that, that this might explain some of the black big cat sightings, uh, you know, for example, if a black leopard or a black jaguar escaped. But this theory has a problem in that you'd also expect sightings of lions and tigers and other circus animals if this was what happened. But I think another possibility for escaped animals is they're escaping from people who keep exotic pets. There are lots of people who keep exotic pets, as people found out with the bizarre Tiger King miniseries on Netflix during the pandemic. I haven't seen the whole thing, but wow. Um, so I think that some of the big black cat sightings may be animals who have escaped from private menageries. I think this is particularly likely to be the case in Great Britain, which doesn't have any native big cats. But I think that explanations like melanistic jaguars, jaguarundis, and even unusually large black house cats is the more likely explanation for many of the sightings here in North America. Our next experience comes from a young listener named Christopher. At school, I, I did browsing and I, I, and I got the card and I got it correct and then I, and then I got to go again and then I won. And then I got nine cards and the other person had seven cards. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. This is Dan and Christopher Schlopman from Baltimore City. And Christopher was trying to explain his uh, his event with dowsing. So he tried dowsing out in his school to find the right card in his memory match game with his friend. Right, Chris? Yes. So that's what he was describing there. And he was able to find the correct card. Yes, I did. So he was very excited about that. He could f he used the the hands. How would you describe it, Chris? The hands put together method. Yeah, and then I just um I reacted the symbol and then I got it. You could feel it. Okay. How did it. You, how did it feel when you got it? Uh, I was like, um, let's see, and then I did I saw my hands and the, pointing there and, the, and I found it and then I, found, I got That's it. Right yeah. Wow. And your friend said um, she thought she, she thought that I was praying to God. Yeah, because your hands were kind of like a prayer position. But you explained that. <laughs> um, I, I was dowsing. <laughs> So it, it worked really well. And uh, we just want to thank you for the show. Congratulations on five-year anniversary. God bless you, D Jimmy and Dom. Thank you, Christopher and Dan. Uh, we discussed dowsing back in episode 246 and again in episode 247. And as we heard, the church has been remarkably open to dowsing. The Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith basically had no problem with doing scientific research on dowsing. In this case, Christopher was using a method known as deviceless dowsing, where you don't use a device like a dowsing rod or a pendulum. In episode 247, we heard a story from former Stargate psychic spy Paul Smith, 
where he put his hands together in a prayer-like position and then did dowsing to find a box of teddy bears that a woman had lost. So congratulations to Christopher on your dowsing success. Our next experience comes from a listener named Jennifer. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. I love your show and I look forward to Fridays every week. So please keep up the great work that you do. So in response to your latest mysterious feedback request from viewers, I decided I would share two experiences that I've had, uh, one having to do with shadow people and the other one is, a, I guess I'll call it a ghost encounter. I hope you find them interesting and I would love to know what Jimmy thinks about what happened, about my experiences. So the first one has to do with a shadow person. Uh, sometime during college, I had gone home to visit my parents for the weekend. And one night I went downstairs to the family room to watch a movie. And I was just settling in when I noticed a dark figure of a person walking past the hallway entrance into the dining room area. I assumed it was my mom and I really didn't think much of it. I thought she was going to enter the kitchen from the dining room side. But when she didn't show up, I decided to call out to her and I was like, mom. And, she, and there was no answer. And I got a little louder. And I was like, mom. And she didn't say anything. I was getting annoyed and I was like, come on or mom, come on, something like that. And just then I saw that dark figure again and it bent back so that its upper body was leaning into the hallway, looking in my direction. And then it straightened up again and went out of sight behind the wall. It was kind of like my mom gave me this half-hearted peek around the corner and then continued on her way into the dining room. And though I saw a shadowy figure, I still just thought it was my mom because it was the evening, the lights were off, except for the TV. And that hallway was dark. And at this point, I think I was just getting annoyed and frustrated. And I decided to walk into the kitchen to catch my mom trying to play a trick on me or something, because sometimes we'll like do that back and forth. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to totally surprise her and like a boo or something like that and startle her. Anyway, I gotten up and I walked into the kitchen and then I made my way to the dining room, but my mom was not there. I freaked out. I ran upstairs and I went into their room and I found my parents asleep. And so I freaked out again, but like even more. <laughs> and I woke them up and my dad came downstairs and he like and looked around and then we prayed together. And that night, I spent the night on the floor of my parents' bedroom because I was too scared to be by myself. The next experience I had, well, I guess I'll call it a ghost encounter. Like I said, I think I'd like to hear what Jimmy's interpretation of the event is. Um, anyway, so about 10 years ago, my husband and I were attending an evening mass at our regular parish at the time. And about midway through, I'd gotten up to use the washroom. And so I'd walked downstairs to the foyer and then I turned that corner and stopped in the hallway, just like right at the entrance of the hallway that leads to the washrooms because the lights in that hallway were turned off and it was pitch black. And I like for the life of me, I could not find the light switch. And I really, really do not like dark hallways. So I just kind of stood there. And eventually I did hear someone which made me feel better. And I was like, well, I'm not alone. So that's good. And then even though somebody was there and I wasn't alone, I just, I still decided to wait <laughs> at the entrance of the hallway until they came out. 
I thought, you know, maybe they're going to help me find the light switch or something. And I know that sounds silly not to go into a hallway just because it's dark, but I've had a scary experience, uh, dark hallways in the past. So anyway, um, I realized whoever it was was in the bathroom because I heard the toilet flush and then I heard the, um, the faucet coming on and then I heard that chung, chung, chung sound of the paper towel dispenser and then it went quiet and I waited for them to come out and I poked my head at some point in the hallway and I was like, hello? Um, because it was taking a while. I was like, why aren't they coming out? And I think at that point it occurred to me that the bathroom light wasn't on and I was like, how is somebody in there with no light on? Like it's pitch black and it was still just sort of quiet and I was like hello like where where did that part where did say like, like an, an alternate entrance or exit or something I was like hello where did they go and that's when I heard like what sounded like a baseball bat with full force hitting that metal trash can in the washroom and I was like Ooh, I just <laughs> scared me and I turn around and I ran so fast I ran up the stairs back into the main area I sat down on the pew next to my husband and I really don't I don't remember what I said to him it's something like I want to go home or something like that I don't remember exactly what I said but I had I do remember the feeling the feelings like I want to go home and I never want to come back to this place ever again but anyway a few months had passed and we met up with some of our friends that are still attending our old parish and during that conversation they told us that some other parishioners were having these weird experiences in the parish's basement. I was like, what? And then I told them my story. And apparently, I'm not alone in what I experienced. In fact, they told me that a group of parishioners was even trying to get permission for, I don't know, like an exorcism or something for the women's washroom specifically. So, well, Jimmy, I'd love to know what your take is on my experience. Thanks and God bless. Thank you, Jennifer. We discussed shadow people back in episode 221, so listeners can check out that episode for the different possible explanations I discussed for shadow people encounters. Not having investigated Jennifer's case, I couldn't say which would be the most likely explanation for her experience, though one natural possibility that should be considered is whether the experience could have been the result of a dream. I've had dreams where I thought I was awake and in my home and even laying on my bed or something like that, only to wake up and discover I'd been asleep. So if I were doing an investigation, I'd ask Jennifer if there was any chance that she might have fallen asleep while watching the movie. The answer might be yes or no, but it's a question I'd ask. When it comes to the experience in the church, it also could be a number of things. When a demon is affecting a particular place rather than a particular person, it's known as infestation rather than a possession. And there can be exorcisms to deal with infestations. But you need pretty good evidence that a demon is involved to get permission for one of those. And just because something is scary, that doesn't mean it's a demon. In this case, Jennifer didn't say anything that would point to a demon specifically, just that there were some spooky, frightening noises. I can't rule out a demon, but I also don't see any evidence pointing to a demon specifically. We'd always want to look for natural explanations, like could it have been someone using the washroom in the dark, or someone playing a prank, or could it have been a wild animal that's getting in? 
But assuming that it didn't have a natural explanation, it would most likely fall into the category of an apparition, a haunting, or a poltergeist. It could be an apparition, that is, a human spirit that is appearing. Often these manifest visibly, but they can also manifest as sounds. On the other hand, if things like the bathroom towel dispenser were physically moving in a paranormal manner, then that would indicate psychokinesis was involved. Psychokinesis could be due to a spirit, human or otherwise, but it also could be due to a living person, as we've heard about in episodes dealing with poltergeists, like episode 195, where we heard that a lot of poltergeist activity is attributed to recurrent, spontaneous psychokinesis performed by living people subconsciously. However, in this case, we don't seem to have evidence for either a spirit or a living human causing it, since nobody saw or communicated with a spirit, and no living person seemed to be around at the time. So I'd wonder if this experience could be an example of the third category, which would make it a haunting. We haven't yet had a full episode on hauntings, although we will. In modern parapsychology, a haunting is understood as a kind of place memory. That is, an impression or recording that's left on a place by somebody who is alive at the time that the recording was laid down. And later on, it just seems to repeat without much variation, like a recording playing over and over. The distinguishing difference between an apparition and a haunting for diagnostic purposes is that in an apparition, you can communicate with the spirit. You can have a conversation. While in a haunting, the recording normally just plays over and over again. So maybe there was there used to be someone at the church who used the ladies' washroom repeatedly and it laid down a psychic imprint on the place that's still being replayed and sometimes parishioners pick up on it. Our next experience comes from listener Keith Little of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Hey, Jimmy and Dom, it's Keith Little from the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Congrats on five years of your fantastic Mysterious World podcast. It's uh, my favorite podcast by far out of every podcast in the whole wide world. And so congrats. And I have a story for you to, you to pick over and mull and let me know what you think of, of this particular story. It takes place in a parish church where I was teaching RCIA, the class for, for potential Catholic converts. And I, I was the guy who went there uh, on a Thursday night at 7 p.m. to teach the class and to unlock the church building. This was near the end of COVID, but our churches up here in Canada were still locked down tight during the day. And so I really got to come to unlock the church to let everybody else in and then to teach the class. On this particular night, it was just me because I unlocked the big wooden front door, stepped into the narthex and it was pitch black in there. So I walk across the narthex to where I know the light switches are and I switch on the first switch I can find with my fingers and it, it lights it lights up the uh, the light over the altar. And what I hear immediately kind of uh, shocks or stuns me. I hear uh, distinct footsteps in the choir loft, which is really above my head at this point. And now what I hear isn't just kind of uh, footsteps you might hear on a, a ghost hunter show or something like that. I'm hearing actually the creaking of the floorboards over my head uh, one at a time as it sounds like somebody's walking back and forth right above my head. So I think right away, oh, the choir director, the organist must be here and, and must have been in the dark, which is kind of strange, but I'm, I'm hearing distinct footsteps. So I call out and say, oh, hey, hi, you know, sorry, I didn't realize you were up there. And how's it going? <laughs> and of course, nobody calls back. <laughs> 
So now I'm kind of chilled to the bone because I'm hearing somebody walking in the choir loft and I'm not thinking anything paranormal. I'm thinking somebody is in the church where they shouldn't be a homeless person, a displaced person, somebody who's up there. And I'm alone with this person in a mostly dark church. So I'm a bit scared at this point. So I know there's only one way to get up into the choir loft in this particular church. There's a door outside in the narthex that leads up a staircase up into the choir loft, kind of spirals around up into the choir loft. And I know that nobody apart from the choir director and the organist and the pastor has keys to that door. I don't have that proper key. And now the way this door works, it requires a key to open it from the outside, but also a key to lock it from the inside. It's a double keyed lock, a key, a keyhole on both sides. So I know that if this door is <laughs> is is locked. If I can see a key through this glass door that leads up there, well, then the the choir director is there or somebody with with a key is there. If I can't see a key in that lock there, then there's no way that anybody could really be up there because it has to be locked from the outside. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So I go across the the narthex, creeping across, uh, hearing the the creaking of these footsteps in this very empty church, just me and this person up there. And of course, this door is locked. And now really, there's there's no way to, to for a person to be up there to lock themselves in from the inside without a key. And so I, I think all I can figure rationally is there's a person hiding up there who shouldn't be up there. So my next call is to the pastor to get him to come all the way over to across town. He comes. He's good natured. <laughs> we laugh, but we go up there. And of course, nobody is up there. Nobody. So I don't know. I have my own theories of what I was hearing, what happened, in my opinion. Uh, I'm curious to hear, Jimmy and Dom, your take on this story. Uh, I'm. Uh, let me know. Thanks, Keith. If this experience had a paranormal explanation, then it could go in one of the categories we just mentioned, apparition, haunting, or poltergeist. Any of those could produce the sound of footsteps in a place where a human couldn't be. However, in this case, there's another plausible explanation that I would investigate. Could an animal be responsible? Small animals like squirrels and possums can get into places where a full-size human can't, like inside walls, crawl spaces, or attics, and from there one could get into the choir loft, even though the door was locked. And they can make noises that sound remarkably like human footsteps given the distance involved and that you're often hearing them through the floor, which is made of boards and distorts the sounds. I know of one case where Lloyd Auerbach, who I interviewed back in episode 210 on the Haunted House of Marin County, was investigating a case, and the people in question were hearing footsteps in their attic every night at the same time. So a little before that time, Lloyd went up in the attic and staked it out, and at the time indicated, Here comes a squirrel that's using the attic as a place to stash its nuts. And as soon as the squirrel shows up, the people below start yelling to Lloyd, saying, There are the footsteps, are you okay? And sure enough, it was the sound of the squirrel making noises that sounded like human footsteps from below. So if I were investigating this case, one of the things I would want to check out is whether an animal could have gotten up into the choir loft and was making the sounds. Also, since wild animals tend to be skittish around humans, the animal might suddenly freeze or hide if it heard humans coming up into the loft, making it seem that the loft was unoccupied when really there was an animal there. So that's a possibility that I would check out. 
Our next experience comes from a listener named Lynn. Hi, my name is Lynn Wise. I currently live in Knoxville, Tennessee, originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And this story is what I've always called my miracle in the South China Sea. When I was a teenager, my dad uh, worked for U.S. Steel and lived in Kaohsiung, Taiwan, uh, for about three or four years uh, working uh, with China Steel. And uh, my parents were divorced. I lived in Pittsburgh with my mother, and I spent two summers in Taiwan visiting my dad. Well, during one of these trips, and I think this was in 1979, um, I would have been 14 or 15. I, I was 15. Um, I, went, I went to, I took my first airplane ride by myself to Taiwan to visit. And there, and, uh, and there was a small community of Americans, families that lived there for their work. Um, and I became friends with, uh, one girl my age and her sister, and we would hang out pretty much every day at a nearby hotel swimming pool. Anyway, one day, uh, me and the two girls and a, a boy named Billy, we decided we took a bus to a national park on the very southern tip of the island, Kenting National Park. And, cause we, and we were told there was a beach nearby, too, that we could stop at. So we were very interested. We were more interested in going to the beach than we were to the park. So so we took this bus down to the park, and when we passed the beach, we got off the bus. And although the beach was closed, and the bus driver even said the beach was closed, and there were signs, part, some of them in English, saying the beach was closed, no lifeguard, because there had been a typhoon or some other bad storm nearby, and the waves were really high, fast, intense. Um, it was very gray. <laughs> the sky was gray. The water was gray. The waves were big. But I've always loved the water, loved playing in the waves. And my teenage brain decided that it would be a good idea to go for a swim. And so I went in the water. And the other three uh, stayed on the beach. I soon... As soon as I went in the water, I kind of realized that it wasn't the best idea. I, I went, I tried to dive under a wave and, and come back up for air. And as soon as I came up for air, I got hit in the face with another wave. And the second time I went underneath a wave and came back up to breathe and <clears throat> got hit in the face with another another wave. And so... And the third, I remember it was after the third time, the third time I came back up for air and got hit in the face with another wall of water. I can almost still feel it. Um, and I'm back underneath the water and it felt like on oh, the water, I felt like I was inside of a washing machine. I could not tell which way was up, down, where the bottom was, anything. And it occurred to me that, okay, I'm, I'm going to die here. And I wasn't scared. I wasn't <clears throat> I mean, curiously no emotion about that it was just matter of fact, like, oh, okay. 
But then, and what I'm going to describe next happened so fast, just instantly. As soon as I realized I I was going to die and was accepting that, I in my mind's eye, I saw a picture of my mother. And I believe, and she was sitting on the couch at our home in Pittsburgh um, in the middle of the night, as it would have been. And it was like I was sitting next to her and was seeing her profile. And she was looking down as if she was reading something. And I have always had the feeling that it wasn't an imagination of mine. I've always kind of had a feeling that I was seeing her real time, almost as as if God was letting me see her in real time. And as soon as I saw her, I said in my mind, God, don't let this happen to my mother. And as soon as I thought those words, I mean, the instant I thought those words, the water stopped, my feet felt the bottom, and I was walking up onto the beach, out of the water. And the three other teenagers just were staring at me with their mouths hanging open. Nobody said a word. I didn't say, well, I didn't say a word except after a minute. We, were, we all smoked back then. I was like, Did I, could anybody give me a cigarette? <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, so yeah, we all smoked Newports back then. <laughs> So we just sat there and smoked and waited for the bus to come back. And we got back on the bus on our way back home. And still nobody had said anything. The two girls didn't say anything to me. And the boy, Billy, I don't remember his last name. After a while of, after a while of riding on the bus, he asked me out of the blue, he goes, what church do you go to? And I said... None, really. I don't, I don't really go to church. And he said, well, what were you raised as? What are your parents? And I told him, oh, I said, well, I'm Catholic. And he, and he thought about it for a while. And he said, because we were sitting, we were just watching you, wondering what we were going to tell your father about what happened to you. And there was a flash of light and you came walking out of the water. And that was all. Nobody, I don't think I said anything else. I don't think any of us said anything the whole rest of the way home. I never told my dad. I only told my mother a couple of years ago. And I've never told anybody else. And um, when I heard your invitation on, uh, on your podcast about listener stories, I thought, well, I think I'm supposed to tell you. So, thank you. Bye. Thanks, Lynn. Your story has elements that are common with other experiences that people have reported. For example, I am aware of a similar story involving a man named Dale Graff. I know Dale, and I hope to have him on the show at some point. He's a physicist and aerospace engineer. He's done a lot of work with with precognitive dreams, but he also played a key role in getting the Defense Department Stargate psychic spying program off the ground. Some years ago, he was surfing in Hawaii. The weather was rough and there was no lifeguard, but he went surfing anyway and realized he needed to get back to shore. 
He was suffering from muscle cramps at the time and having a hard time paddling. Then, even though the sound of the waves was really loud, he heard a cry for help, and he felt impelled to pedal back out to sea, which he then did. As he's paddling back out to sea, all of a sudden, he runs into a woman in the water. It was his wife, Barbara. She was supposed to be back on the beach with the children. She didn't even know how to swim, but she'd somehow gotten swept out to sea, and she was in the process of drowning. Dale, despite the muscle cramps, pulled her up onto his surfboard, but their situation was desperate, and it didn't look like they would both survive. When suddenly, Dale had an out-of-body experience. He saw himself and his wife from above, and that gave him the information he needed to figure out how to get the two of them back to shore. He finally did so, and then he used CPR to get the water out of Barbara's lungs. Both Lynn and Dale's stories involve a crisis experience in which a person nearly drowns. Then they have a paranormal experience involving another person, Lynn's mother, in Lynn's case, and Dale's wife, in Dale's case. They're both concerned about what's going to happen to the other person, and then something strange happens and they both miraculously get through the experience. In parapsychological terms, Remote viewing and out-of-body experiences are often linked, and some have proposed that out-of-body experiences may just be particularly intense remote viewing experiences. So maybe Dale psychically perceived the danger his wife was in, causing him to paddle back out to sea toward her, and then he had a remote viewing out-of-body experience to figure out how to get back to shore. And maybe Lynn also had a remote viewing experience of her mother since she said it felt real and not just like a mental image. And then she also figured out how to get back to shore. What's unique about Lynn's experience that I haven't heard of in other cases like this is the flash of light that her friends on the beach perceive. That could have been a literal flash of physical light, or it could have been a psychic perception that marked the turning point after which Lynn would be okay. A key question to wonder about is whether Lynn had a purely psychic experience or whether God intervened in this situation to save her. But I don't view those two things as being in opposition. As St. Thomas Aquinas said, grace perfects nature. So maybe God used his grace to tap the psychic abilities that Lynn had as part of her human nature to give her the information she needed. Or maybe he just directly, supernaturally downloaded the information into her head or otherwise arrange a divine coincidence so that she could get her feet on the seafloor and walk back. I'd just say whatever happened, thank God it did, and thank God she's okay. Our next experience comes from an anonymous listener. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. I want to tell you my mysterious experience seeing a Benedictine monk three or four times while I was driving through an intersection and he was coming through uh, the opposite way and nothing extraordinary about that. It was him. He was in his habit. He was hunched over the steering wheel like he always does. It made me smile. Uh, just his mannerisms. But the thing is, he had died a few months earlier. And, you know, I didn't believe it's the first couple times I just figured I was mistaken. 
and I was never thinking about it, expecting it. There was always enough time that it had just left my mind. But after the fourth time, I did think, oh, wait a minute. I knew enough about the paranormal about because I was interested in ghost stories and the paranormal that it's like, I think there might be something to this. And I did go to the the abbot of the monastery and I thought he was going to laugh at me, but he was quite serious and said, no, I think brother Sebastian wants you to know that he's thinking about you and that he cares about you. And here's the thing. I was a postulant at a double community monks in one building, nuns in the other. We would meet for office and, and a mass in the church. And I was a postulant there, which means I was had the status of like Maria in Sound of Music. I hadn't yet taken the habit. I was just seeing what it was like. And long story short, I had been asked to leave. They didn't think I had a vocation. And they also kind of thought I was a hypochondriac. Um, I was complaining about a pain in my leg and I guess they didn't believe me. Well, this brother Sebastian had died of a heart attack just a few days before I was asked to leave. And it was a big shock to everyone. And I asked if I might stay at least through the funeral, which they let me do. So we had the funeral for him. I went home the next day, and the day after that, I went to a doctor to see about my leg, and it turned out I had a life-threatening blood clot in my leg. I ended up in the hospital, and I went into a very bad depression because I felt like, I can't believe God's rejecting me. He doesn't want me as a nun. Now I'm here in the hospital. I could die, and I saw nothing ahead for me, and and it was in that kind of depression I got my old job back and I was headed to that job still dealing with de- this depression when this happened that I saw this monk. And I don't think it meant as much to me then as it does now. Now I, now I can see after 35 years or more that um, it, I think God was using brother or at least the appearance of brother Sebastian to let me know that somebody was thinking about me and cared about me. I wasn't alone. Thank you. I'm very sorry to hear about this difficult phase in your life. In terms of your experience seeing brother Sebastian after his death, this is what would be known as an apparition, both in parapsychology and in the church. An apparition is when a spirit, like the soul of a deceased person, appears to someone, often in visual form, although it can be in other forms as well. And if this was a paranormal experience, then I would agree with the abbot's interpretation of it, that Brother Sebastian was letting you know that he cared for you and was thinking about you, and no doubt that he was praying for you in his afterlife. Our next experience comes from a listener named Mark. Hi. This is my story. Now, I have no memory of this, but it's something that uh, my parents told me. 
Now, I was five years old at the time, and we were living in South Carolina, and my grandmother on my father's side uh, was living in a nursing home in Minnesota. And from what my father would tell me, I was, I was her favorite grandson. Well, one night, my dad heard me screaming in my bedroom. And uh, my parents uh, came into my bedroom and they asked me what was the matter. And I said that grandma was here. Grandma was here. And my dad said, no, grandma is in Minnesota. She's not here. And I insisted that grandma was here and she came to see me. Well, after they put me to bed and uh, went off to sleep, the next morning, my father got the phone call that my grandmother had passed away during the night. So I guess you could say that my grandmother had, um, had come to visit me and wanted to say goodbye. Uh, but I have no recollection of it. And I, mean, I, was, I would think that she probably did. Thanks, Mark. And I would think that your grandmother probably did visit you as well. Uh, what you're reporting is a very common kind of experience, and it's known as a crisis apparition. Crisis apparitions occur when someone is in crisis. They often occur just before someone dies, at the time of their death, or just after their death, and they somehow appear to loved ones or people they know. So if you were your grandmother's favorite grandchild, it wouldn't be at all unusual for her to appear to you in this kind of situation just to say goodbye. It's a beautiful story. Before we continue with our mysterious experiences from our listeners, I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible and have done so generously over the past five years, including this time Michael and Ann F., Justice M., Kelly Ann M., Cameron and Charlie M., and Jack M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World for many, many years to come, I hope, and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Our next experience comes from a listener named Cindy, and there's something distinctive about this experience. What is that, Jimmy? Unlike the other experiences we're discussing in this episode, this is one that I have done a paranormal investigation on. Cindy contacted me back in 2021 after she began having poltergeist experiences. She's very analytical and detail-oriented, which made it a pleasure to work with her on an investigation. Before she even contacted me, she had already set up cameras in her home to try to capture some of the poltergeist phenomena, and she was very good about seeking natural explanations for what she was hearing and seeing. Her poltergeist activity has happened in several waves, uh, where a bunch of it was happening and then it would reduce in frequency for a long period. 
And we discovered these waves were correlated with stressful events in her life, which is typical of cases where a living person's recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK, is responsible for poltergeist activity. Stress, you know, causes the person to have subconscious tension and frustration that they then work out by releasing psychokinesis. So in what we're about to hear, notice how the waves of poltergeist activity are correlated with stressful things in her life, like her religious conversion from atheism and the COVID lockdowns and events in her work life. Here's part of a description of the experiences that she contributed for this episode. The summer before I became Catholic, I was atheist most of my life. In 2017, I started experiencing moving objects in my condominium, and then again on two separate occasions in my historic home. Initially, I assumed it was my neighbor crossing signals to my unit with his remote control in the middle of the night. And then I thought I was being haunted. As it turns out, after consulting with Jimmy and isolating the events and keeping track of my own emotions surrounding the incidents, I think it might be a combination of my being haunted and my own psychokinesis. I moved into a condo after a divorce in 2016. The first year I lived in the condo, nothing of note was out of the ordinary. Then, after I started to attend RCIA during the summer of 2017, I experienced both fans turning on and off, and the attached light fixtures would turn on full lumens in the middle of the night. This started out only occasionally, once every few weeks, but then became several times a week. I prayed the rosary for the first time on February 14, 2018. The next day, I went to pray again. I was kneeling at my bedside at night with my back to the floor-to-ceiling windows that surrounded one side of my bedroom, and I started to go through the mysteries. One of my kittens was playing on the floor next to me, and the other was asleep in his sling bed attached to the window. As soon as I announced the second mystery, the blackout shades on all the windows of the bedroom were triggered and started to descend. Like the fans, the shades were controlled by remote control. Except the shades used a newer technology that changed the signal every time so that cross-signaling would not be an issue. When the shades descended, the cats ran out of the room. About the same time, I had bought a desk lamp with a dimmer on it and placed it in my bedroom. It too would start turning on in the middle of the night to full lumens. I was truly afraid of my condo, and right after I got baptized in April, I found an historic home and put an offer on it. After I moved into my new old place, I plugged the desk lamp in by the front door. That night, I found it turned on and did not remember doing that. I immediately unplugged it and threw it in the garage where it remains. I never had any reason to think my house is haunted and still do not. There was no activity in the house after I moved in for many months, aside from that light turning on the first night. However, the closet in the main bedroom was very dark, so I installed motion sensor lights that ran on batteries and magnetically stuck to the wall. I installed about three or four in that closet, and the things would turn on all night long. They would come on at different times and would stay on for a short period. I began working out of town for six months and had a friend stay at my house four days a week. I warned her about the lights. After the six months, she told me the lights never turned on. In February 2019, the mail slot on the inside of my house opened and slammed shut by itself forcefully and loudly, which caused smaller reverberations of opening and closing. This happened twice during the day over the course of a couple weeks. Even when I tried to slam the flap shut, the force was not enough to match what I saw and heard. This is where I marked the end of the first round of disturbances. 
About a year later, another object moving was my MP3 player. It kept falling from the tank of the toilet or the bathroom sink onto the floor while I was showering. It wasn't until Ash Wednesday 2020, one week before everything shut down for COVID, was I completely scared. That night, I awoke to the office door creaking open. It was loud and my heart started to pound. The cats were both next to me sleeping. The house was completely still. No AC, no fan, no breeze. The doors are original to the house and solid wood. The next day, I tried to recreate the door moving without touching it by dancing around it, blowing on it, and pounding on the floor. Nothing moved the door. I was afraid I had a ghost. I was too scared to tell anyone or speak to the spirit and prayed fervently every night for it to go away. Wednesday, March 18th, we went into COVID lockdown. For the next few months, I was plagued by slow creaking noises around my bed, in the hallway, and in the bathroom that sounded like an entity was hovering. The creaking or crackling sounds would be along the floor, but also along the walls and what seemed to be in the air. This invasion was coupled by loud bangs that would occur almost every night in my bedroom. These bangs sounded like flat beach balls and heavy books slamming on the floor, often waking me in the cats. Another sound that I did capture on video was the sound of my closet doorknob turning and releasing, except with a strong force that caused the releasing sound to ring. I was unable to recreate the amplitude of that sound by normal means. I wanted to record the sounds but was too scared, and when they would occur I would wake up and just lie there with my eyes tight shut and my heart pounding. I realized I was dealing with a person or a ghost who needed prayers. That's when I got into indulgences and prayers for the dead. Then on June 14th, the Feast of Corpus Christi, I was getting ready for Mass at 11. I looked it up to see if there was a special indulgence for that feast, and there is. I sat down on the edge of my bed to text my friend to tell her I was going to say an indulgence for her mother. Right then, my MP3 player lifted off my nightstand and landed at my feet. July 1st, 2020, I woke up to a loud bang in the living room, followed by the sound of cat toys rolling across the floor. I didn't know how to end this activity. Then, Friday, July 10th, I went to adoration and asked Jesus to get rid of the entity in my house. The next Thursday, after Mass, the priest came back out, still in his vestments, walked up to me and said, Do you need me? We drove to my house, and he said prayers of deliverance and sprinkled holy water in every room. The bangs in the night continued regularly for another three weeks before finally ceasing. This is where I mark the end of the second round of disturbances. August 2021, nearly a year after the previous episode, banging in my bedroom started again. I was having multiple work stresses. Then, in September, objects started moving in my house again. One evening, I was sitting on my couch with my cat, and the sounds of clicking or crackling along the floor and the walls was making its way from beside the TV, across the room, and into one of the walls. One morning, while I was in the dark, heading toward the kitchen to feed my cats, I heard something slide off the dining room table onto the floor. I turned the light on and found my missile and my folders I use for RCIA on the floor. The cats are active this time in the morning, so I initially thought they did it. Then, a few days later, as I was getting up, at 5.30, I walked over to the front door and opened it slightly for the cats. I walked into the kitchen, and as I walked by, I heard a loud sound and saw the missile and the papers on the floor again. The cats were still at the front door staring at me. 
They did not do it. Later, as I was practicing my talk for RCIA in the dining room, there was a ruckus in the kitchen. I thought it was a cat or two, but they were sleeping. At this point, I decided I needed documentation. It would take a few months before I would get the courage to set up cameras in my dining room and my bedroom. I did capture some of the bangs on video and still have the cameras set up, although I do not need to review them anymore. I reached out to Jimmy Aiken to see if he could help me. And with Jimmy's help, I was able to set up an experiment to see if I was the cause of the movement. I started to establish a pattern and connection between my feelings and the bangs. It seems that there is a direct connection between my emotions and the bangs. But there are still crackling sounds that move around the house from room to room, and it does not seem to be associated with any stress in my life. I still have not tried to speak to it, but I plan on it. I'm no longer afraid of objects moving. Most recently, a friend was over, and we were watching the show Midnight Mass. One scene had the words of consecration over the visual of a vampire feeding the priest. I was super disturbed by it. In that instance, we both saw my Catechism of the Catholic Church book shift violently in my bookshelf. It was pretty exciting. So we don't have any hard evidence of an evil spirit being involved here. There are no visual apparitions or malevolent voices. Instead, Cindy reports waves of poltergeist-like phenomena. And these waves are associated with emotionally stressful times in her life, which are typical, or which is typical, of RSPK cases. She's also captured quite a bit of audio and video evidence that I've examined, and while we did find natural explanations for some of the objects moving, like a ceiling fan blowing some cat toys, we have not been able to explain everything that she's been able to record. Fortunately, though the activity still occurs at a low level, she's no longer alarmed by it. And if it ever becomes bothersome, there are things that we can do to try to help either redirect it or make it go away. Our next experience comes from Bernardo Aparicio, who is the publisher of the Catholic magazine Dappled Things. He writes, My maternal grandfather, Marcio Garcia y Garcia, had an amazing life that left a deep mark in both his family and his country. He was a loving father of nine kids and a committed Catholic, as well as a lawyer and public servant. At different times, he served both as a judge and legislator, but his greatest contribution was to the development of sports in Colombia. He not only served for many years as president of the Colombian Olympic Committee and the country's representative to the International Olympic Academy, but he was largely responsible for the initiative that brought the 1971 Pan American Games to Cali, Colombia, not to mention for leading the delegation that won the first Olympic medal for Colombia in 1972. When I was a little boy, my grandfather enjoyed shocking me with a terrible scar that completely disfigured his abdomen. He would say it was from a wound he had received in the war. He would never specify which. I never quite believed him, but I wasn't sure what to think. It turns out the real story was a lot more impressive. One night in 1938, my grandfather developed abdominal pain that continued into the following day. Yet a renowned local physician said there was nothing serious to worry about. Unfortunately, my grandfather continued to deteriorate during the course of the week. Seven days after the symptoms started, my grandfather was examined by Dr. Luis Maria Ferro Diaz in Bogota's Clinica Marley, who diagnosed a generalized peritonitis that required immediate surgery. It turns out the pain he had been experiencing was from appendicitis, which left untreated, had ruptured the appendix, and spread infection through the entire abdomen. 
Unfortunately, since this happened on a Sunday, there was no other doctor available to assist with the operation. Desperate, Dr. Farrow ran around the hospital looking for help, actually going all the way out into the street. By God's grace, he actually ran into a colleague who was driving by who agreed to participate in the surgery. However, after this second doctor performed his own examination, and believing my grandfather to be unconscious, he told Dr. Farrow, Doctor, but why should we operate on a corpse? My grandfather heard this, and though he could not speak, he prayed that the man would realize it was still not beyond hope. At length, Dr. Farrow prevailed, and the operation commenced. They found the entire abdomen was infected. My uncle, Dr. Alejandro Garcia, described it this way. He was not yet alive when all this happened, but he heard the stories many times from his parents and older relatives. There were seven intestinal perforations all caused by an appendicitis that was not operated in time. They removed the appendix and cleaned out the abdominal cavity. This being 1938, however, antibiotics were not available. Fleming had discovered penicillin back in 1929, but the medicine was not yet commercially available, much less so in Colombia. The medical staff did their best to clean the affected areas, but with seven fistulas, channels connecting his intestines to outside of the abdomen, the wound from his operation refused to close. Staff would clean the area daily and cover it with bandages, but intestinal material would seep out, and the wound gave off an utterly disgusting smell. Despite their best efforts to hide it, my grandfather could see this disgust in the face of everyone who visited the room. The situation continued like this for months after the operation. With great care from the medical staff, my grandfather's situation tended toward improving, but only extremely slowly. After four months, five of the seven fistulas did manage to close up, but the other two continued to keep his wound open. Just to be clear, what this means is that when his bandages were not on, his intestines were literally open to the air. At this point, his situation stagnated. He was in a stable enough condition that cleanings were now done weekly, yet every time the bandages were removed, the remaining fistulas continued unchanged. It was at this time that the relics of St. Maria Mazzarello, who had just been beatified that year, were brought on tour to Colombia. St. Maria was the founder of the Salesian Sisters of St. John Bosco, the order of nuns that my grandfather's eldest sister Matilde had joined. Their mother, Maria Luisa, my great-grandmother, appealed to Sister Matilde upon hearing that relics of the blessed founder of her order were in the country. Sister Matilde was able to secure for her mother a very small piece of St. Maria's habit. At the same time, my great-grandmother began a novena to Our Lady, praying for her son's healing with great faith, but also with a sense that without extraordinary divine aid he would never recover. Two days after the novena started, one of my grandfather's cleanings was scheduled. Maria Luisa headed to the hospital armed with a medal of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, the relic, and her faith. I believe this faith, probably combined with a sense of desperation, led her to do something shocking. At the moment when the nurses were about to place bandages over the wound, my great-grandmother stuck the relic and medal into her son's abdomen. The doctors and nurses present were incensed. They assured her that what she had done would aggravate the infection and finally put her son in the grave. Yet Maria Luisa was unfazed. She responded that after months of doing the same procedures and seeing no progress, all that remained was to place him, through Our Lady's intercession, in the hands of God. She refused to let the doctors remove the relic and medal, and hard as it is to imagine, 
In the end, they honored her wishes. The next cleaning was seven days later, the last day of the novena. When the nurses removed the bandages, they discovered that the wound had finally closed and the fistulas were gone. Many years later, when my grandfather was an old man, he had some new stomach issues, which required x-rays. My uncle Gonzalo Garcia, a highly respected pediatrician, was present while radiologists were looking at the images. They were concerned because it appeared to them that he had some kind of metallic clip stuck in his peritoneum. My uncle laughed and said, take a good look, because that's the medal of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which my grandmother stuck in through a fistula he had many years ago. They stared at each other in shock and replied, you're absolutely right. Thanks, Bernardo. That's an amazing experience, and we can all thank God that your grandfather was able to recover from his very serious condition and in an age before antibiotics were available. Our next experience comes from a listener named Joseph. He writes, I was touring Alcatraz about 10 years ago. I went between cell blocks down a little vacant corridor. While alone and not near anyone and not using narration headset, I heard a distinct hi next to my ear. About four years ago, my wife checked into a Red Wing historic hotel, that is, the St. James Hotel in Red Wing, Minnesota. We were upgraded to large fireplace room with historic furnishings. While unpacking, I heard a distinct hi coming from the direction of the wall. It wasn't my wife, and the old walls were too thick, and the adjoining room vacant. This female voice was unsettling, and we reported it to the front desk, who said our room was an old women's lounge. Thanks, Joseph. I'm familiar with other reports like this from places like prisons and hotels. Because of how brief the experiences were, I couldn't confidently put them into a specific paranormal category. Greetings could be part of a recording, so these could be hauntings with no human spirit present. Or, if you were able to establish an ongoing conversation with the voice, that would point to the presence of a spirit and thus make the experience's apparitions. That's assuming, of course, that the explanation is paranormal rather than natural, like the voice of a distant but still living person echoing in a way that you could hear it, or some other kind of sound that wasn't heard properly, or even these being something that was bubbling up from the subconscious. But it does fit with accounts of apparitions and hauntings at other similar locations. Our next experience comes from a listener named Captain Sandy. She writes, This event took place in the autumn of 2002 in Baltimore, Maryland, where I was serving on active duty as the staff judge advocate for the commanding officer of the U.S. Coast Guard Yard, the main ship repair facility for the U.S. Coast Guard. My husband was attending the University of Maryland Nursing School at the time, which is physically located in downtown Baltimore. We lived in Kensington, Maryland, a northern suburb of Washington, D.C., and both of us commuted to Baltimore each day. I drove our car. My husband usually carpooled with a classmate on school days. The CG Yard legal suite consisted of a waiting room for clients with the paralegal's reception desk and then my separate office. Gene, the paralegal, managed the main phone line. Only one phone number was published for the legal office. I had another phone in my office with a direct number you could call, but I never gave out that number. Only the CO, the paralegal, and my husband had that number. Usually, Gene would buzz me to pick up an important call, or he could transfer the caller directly to me, or transfer them to leave a message. This day was just like any other. My husband had carpooled with his classmate to school. 
This was the early days of mobile phones, and neither my husband nor I owned a cell phone. I had a pager from work. I returned to my office from a meeting, and Jean was at lunch. The message indicator on my phone showed one message. I played the message. At first, I couldn't figure out what was on it. It sounded like ambient noise with some faint voices. I listened to the message a second time and turned the volume way up. I realized it was my husband's voice. I looked at the time of the message and realized that it was a recording of him, mid-conversation, talking to his classmate in her car during their commute home. I had to listen several more times to understand the words. I was startled when I finally understood what they were talking about. The classmate was clearly upset. She was telling my husband that she'd been having strange feelings and dreams about her recently deceased grandmother. For several nights in a row, she had woken from sleep crying. She was insistent that Nana was trying to get in touch with her and that she couldn't shake these scary feelings. Then the message runs out. Yikes. I asked Gene if he had transferred a call. He said no. Nobody had called the office. I asked my husband about it. He remembered the conversation, but said it was just in the middle of the drive and nothing out of the ordinary had happened during their commute. He said that nobody had used a cell phone during their commute. In fact, he said the classmate had a really cheapy cell phone for emergencies, but it was turned off. In fact, her phone was in her backpack in the trunk of the car. She didn't have my office number anyway. To this day, we can't figure out how this could have possibly happened. The classmate was mortified, but oddly comforted. Way to go, Grandma. Thank you, Captain Sandy. If this experience were to have a natural explanation, it would involve a cell phone that someone had in, a car, in the car. And for some reason, the cell phone activated and placed a call without anyone realizing it. That does sometimes happen. We've all had the experience of receiving pocket dials from friends whose phones were in their pockets and got jostled in a way that caused them to call us. However, if things are as you say, if the friend's cell phone was the only one in the car and it was turned off in a backpack in the trunk of the car and did not contain your phone number, then it's hard to explain that naturally, in which case this would fall into a category in parapsychology known as after-death communication, or ADC. Specifically, since the instrument of a phone was involved, it would be classified as a form of, of instrumental transcommunication, or ITC. And people do report receiving phone calls, voicemails, and now even text messages from the deceased. Sometimes the messages are in the dead person's own voice, and we will be discussing these messages in a future episode. In this case, it would sound like the grandmother had been trying to make contact with your husband's fellow student, presumably to let her know that she was okay, but the student had been reacting to the dreams negatively and was getting freaked out by them, so the grandmother, I guess, decided to try a different form of after-death communication, and when the student was describing the dreams and her feelings about them to your husband, she somehow arranged for this audio to show up on your answering machine, either by the turned-off phone or in some other way. The experience was notable enough and objective enough that y'all reported it back to your husband's friend, and it seems to have had the desired effect of comforting the woman's granddaughter. At least, this would be one plausible way of interpreting the experience. Our next experience comes from a listener named Emily. She says, As a stay-at-home mom, I enjoy your show while multitasking, doing chores at home. 
I'm responding to your request for mysterious experiences. I actually have two I'd like to tell you about. When I was around 16 years old, I was sitting in my homecoming date's basement waiting for him to get ready. I was watching a show on the television when he got my attention, telling me it was time to go. I turned off the television and started following him upstairs, but to my surprise, when I turned the corner of the stairs, he was gone, and the door at the top was shut. Confused, because I thought he was right in front of me, I turned around to find him just coming out of the bathroom. I told my date what had happened, and he said he was told, I presume by his parents, that his house was built on a Native American burial ground, and that things like that weren't uncommon there. Could there really be something to that? Was I just hallucinating because I was eager to go? I don't know. My second mystery dates back to my early childhood and continues to this day. As long as I can remember, I have randomly noticed a drip or line, gray or dark gray in color, coming down from the ceiling, usually in doorways. It only lasts a second and then disappears. It's very unpredictable, but it has happened to every place I've lived. It does tend to be more noticeable in dim lighting. However, I can't seem to recreate an environment to make it happen. It just does sometimes. Someone once told me it could be my guardian angel reminding me they are there. And that's brought me comfort, although I'm skeptical that's really the reason. Do you have any ideas as to what this could be? Let's deal with the first experience first. And one thing I have to say about it is that I'd be cautious about the Native American burial ground claim. That's an idea that became popular after the release of the 1977 book, The Amityville Horror, which we will be discussing in a future episode, and which was a case of fraud, not a genuine apparition, haunting, or infestation. After the book came out, a whole slew of spooky movies were made in the 1980s that used the ancient Indian burial ground idea, and it's become a trope. So anytime you have a place where unusual things happen, the question gets asked, and perhaps a rumor gets started, that it's built over a Native American burial ground, even when that's not at all true. Also, for those tribes that did have burial grounds, they'd just be cemeteries. And just because something is a cemetery doesn't mean that anything strange is going to happen there. Having said all that, if we interpret the first experience in paranormal terms, it could be understood as a time slip. Your homecoming date told you it was time to go, and then you followed him up the stairs, only to slip back in time or into a parallel timeline where he was just coming out of the bathroom. A natural explanation would be maybe you thought that he called you. Maybe someone else in the house yelled that it was time for you to go, you mistook him as saying this, then you started up the staircase, and then he emerged from the bathroom behind you. Another paranormal explanation, which I like better than the time slip one, is maybe you had a visionary experience. On some level, you realized it was time to go. Perhaps you even telepathically sensed from his mind that he was thinking it was time to go, and your subconscious processed this in terms of a visionary experience where you heard him. Uh, tell you that it was time to go, and you started following what seemed to be him up the staircase, only for the visionary experience to end when you saw the closed door, and then he emerged from the bathroom. I like that better than the time slip theory because it doesn't involve physical time travel, and because it doesn't involve an alternative timeline, like him being in the bathroom instead of being in front of you, and because while time slips are reported, 
their nature is ambiguous, whereas things like telepathic experiences and visions are much better established. When it comes to the second experience, the drip or line that you see in doorways, not sure what to think. It could be a sign that it's your guardian angel signaling to you that he's there, but it could also be anything. Uh, the fact that it tends to occur in doorways and in dim light makes me want to look for a natural explanation. It could be a perceptual issue caused by something going on in the eye or in the way that your brain is processing visual information in this kind of situation. If you wanted to pursue it further, you could have your eyes checked out and or talk with a neurologist. But as long as it's not causing you any problems, that may not be necessary. It's definitely an interesting experience, though. Our next experience comes from a listener named Katie. She says, This is the story of our haunted house. This completely true story took place in Commerce Township, Michigan, and it all started when my parents bought a new house. They took possession of the house the day before Thanksgiving in 1996. I was almost two years old at the time, and my younger brother would be born a year later while we still lived in the house. Everything that happened to us occurred when we lived there, from November 1996 to October 1999. The previous owner of the house was also its builder. He and his family lived in the house for two years, and when they moved out, they left all their furniture, which included a brand new television and stereo set. At the time, my parents did not think anything was strange about that. The first strange thing to happen to us in that house occurred the second day we lived there, which also happened to be Thanksgiving. My grandparents were at the house for dinner, and we were eating when we experienced a brownout at the house. The lights were continuously dimming and brightening, and this lasted into the night. They never went out completely, but it was clear that there was something very wrong with the electricity. They called the builder, who was also the one they bought the house from, and he came out in the middle of the night to see if he could figure out what was wrong. He ended up having to call the power company to assess the house. The power company found a break in the trunk line that went into the house, which was under a paved asphalt driveway. One of the three cords going into the house was severed, and the power company had no idea how that could have happened. As we lived in the house longer, my parents would frequently hear knocking on the windows. Every few days, it would sound like someone was knocking on a window, but there was never anyone there. This occurred at a variety of windows around the house, and there were no trees by any of the windows. Then, one day, my parents were sitting on the back deck and heard a baby crying under the deck. They knew where I was, and it wasn't me, and my brother wasn't born yet. My mom is a labor and delivery nurse, and my dad is an ER physician, and they were certain that it was a human baby that they heard crying. They did not think it sounded like any animal they had ever heard. In fact, they were scared that someone had abandoned a baby under their deck. They crawled under the deck to look for the baby, but while they were searching, the crying suddenly stopped, and they were never able to find the source of it. They estimated that the crying lasted for 30 minutes. One day, my mom heard footsteps at the front door, and our dog started to bark at the front door. She saw the figure of a woman and a child through the window of the door, but when she opened the door, no one was there. After this, she would frequently hear the sound of children playing at the front door, but every time she checked it, there would be no one there. At first, she thought the children might have been neighborhood kids, but it was strange that she never saw them and there was not a good place to hide. There was no way they could have gotten away in the time it took to open the door. All the windows in our house had locks in them, and some of them were crank windows. The windows would frequently unlock and open up on their own. 
This would even happen in the middle of winter when they would always keep the windows locked to make sure they didn't accidentally get opened. Another strange occurrence that was frequently happening in the house was that the dryer would open up and the clothing would be completely out of it. They could not figure out what would cause both the dryer to open up and the clothes to be completely out of it. If it just opened on its own, the clothes should have spilled out a little, but there should have been still some left in the machine. They also knew that I was not doing it because I was a toddler and was constantly being monitored. One night, while my parents were getting ready for bed, my dad was in the kitchen, and in the kitchen window, he saw the reflection of a woman in a white nightgown walking through the house. He thought it was my mom, so he called out to her, but the woman did not respond. Since he thought it was my mom, he decided it would be fun to scare her, so he popped out where he saw the woman walking, but no one was there. He then went into their bedroom, and my mom was already asleep in bed, and she wasn't wearing a white nightgown. At this point, after all these things were going on, my parents started to think there was something strange with the house. It was after all this that they thought there might be a ghost or the house might be haunted. Every time they were in the house and talked about the possibility of there being a ghost, the middle light on a track light in the kitchen would go out. They could not figure out how this was possible because normally, on that type of track light, the middle light can't go out without the lights on the edge going out. They tried changing the light bulb and the order of the lights, but every time they talked about a ghost, the middle light would go out. The house had a finished basement that had its own bedroom, living room, and wet bar. There was one night that my parents were in the basement watching TV, and they thought they heard me get out of bed and come downstairs. They heard the sound of little kid footsteps thumping down the first flight of stairs to the landing above the main level. Then they heard more footsteps thumping down the stairs to the main level. And finally, they heard the footsteps going all the way down to the basement. They called for me, but no one answered them. They decided to look for me and went up to my room and found me asleep in my bed. There was no way I could have run back upstairs to my room from the basement without them seeing me, and the dog was with them. A small annoyance that frequently occurred to them was the light on their china cabinet would regularly turn on by itself. This was something that never occurred when we moved out of that house and took the china cabinet with us. There was one night that my mom was home with us, and she was talking on the phone with her mom while she waited for my dad to come home. There was supposed to be a bad snowstorm that night, so she waited up to make sure he got home safely. While on the phone with my grandma, she kept hearing kids giggling upstairs. She thought it was me laughing at my brother trying to get him up. She finally checked on us to put me back to bed, and we were both asleep in our own beds. We started to hear bloodhounds outside our house in the middle of the night. It sounded like there were coon hunters right outside the back door. My parents went outside to see what was going on, and as soon as they turned the lights on outside, the noise immediately stopped. No one was outside, and there were no footprints in the snow. They were really convinced that something paranormal was happening in their house, and it was being a nuisance. My mom once again found all the laundry on the floor next to the dryer, and she became angry at whatever was in the house. She yelled at the ghosts in the house, saying, you better make yourselves useful if you're going to live here. My dad's closet in their bedroom was broken where the latch on the door was completely misaligned with the socket in the wall so it could not close. The same day after my mom yelled at the ghosts, his closet door was suddenly fixed. During one of the Christmases that we spent in the house, we took a family photo next to the tree. The camera was on a tripod so there was no one behind it and everyone in the house was in front of the camera. When the photo was developed, there was the shadow of a man wearing a hat next to all of us. 
No one in the photo had cast a shadow, and there was no one standing in the location that could have made that shadow. In addition, no one was wearing clothing or a hat that looked like that shadow. In fact, my grandma thought the shadow figure looked just like her dad. One day, when I was two or three years old, my parents saw me in the hallway. It looked like I was struggling to push an invisible object into the floor. When they asked me what I was doing, I said, I'm pushing the ghost in the hole. They called me to the end of the hall and then asked me what the ghost's name was. I went back to the spot in the hall that I was before and started talking to someone in the hall that my parents couldn't see. I came back and said that his name is Marshall. Then my dad asked if Marshall had a last name. I went back and asked Marshall what his last name was. I returned and said it was McGee. After that, when something weird happened in the house, we would blame it on Marshall McGee. We tried to look up if there was ever a living Marshall McGee in that area, but we couldn't find anything. Not only was I pushing ghosts into the hole, but our dog also seemed to see and experience weird things. He would frequently bark into the house at things that my parents couldn't see, and sometimes while he was sleeping, he would yelp as if something hit him. He would also circle the house while growling. He would also suddenly wake up from sleeping to growl at something. His actions were always oriented toward the interior of the house. He rarely got angry at something that he saw through a window. He never acted this way in any other house. After the Marshall incident, we had the two incidents with the strange noises in the wall. The first one occurred one evening while my parents were sitting upstairs and watching Seinfeld. They heard a weird mechanical noise that was the exact rhythm of a heartbeat. They both swore that it was the exact lub-dub rhythm that you would hear listening to someone's heart through a stethoscope, something that both of them had done many times. After walking through the house, they figured that the heartbeat sound was coming from a particular wall. It was the same wall that the center bulb of the track light would go out on. To figure out what was causing that noise, my dad stayed and listened to it while my mom went to the breaker to cut the power to different points of the house one by one. Every time she turned something off, the sound continued. Finally, they totally cut the power to the house, but even though everything else was silent, they could still hear the heartbeat in the wall. This noise lasted for days, and they even had friends over who confirmed hearing the heartbeat noise in the wall. They heard the second noise in the upstairs wall as well. It was a high-pitched buzzing noise that also did not have any electrical cause to it. It stayed in one spot for a week, then they heard it moving. They followed the noise as it went down the upstairs hallway and into my bedroom. It went into my bedroom closet, and then into a little crawl space in the closet that went into the attic. The part of the attic that it went into was above the garage. The first incident to actually scare my parents was when we were about to leave on vacation to Florida. We were in our minivan in the garage, and we were all ready to drive to the airport when the garage door openers weren't working. The battery on the opener seemed fine, so my dad got out to inspect the doors, and he found all three garage doors bolted shut. My parents never bolted the garage doors because they were really big and heavy, and it took two adults to move each bolt. Plus, they wouldn't be able to use the opener in the car if they were always locked like that. This really freaked my parents out, and they weren't sure if it was a warning to not get on the plane or if the house was trying to trap us and keep us home. They seriously considered not going on vacation in case something bad happened on the flight. Ultimately, they unlocked the garage doors, and we had a safe flight to Florida. That incident freaked my parents out more than the others, except for perhaps Marshall McGee.
and my dad always said that he expected to see a face looking out a window at us as we left. I will now tell the story of the scariest night we had in that house. My parents were sitting in bed watching TV. They had two baby monitors up, one each for my brother and me. They were video monitors, and in the past, they had occasionally seen in my room the toddler rocking chair moving by itself, but they didn't think anything of it until this night. While they were watching TV, they heard a toy go off in my bedroom, and they thought that I was awake. The toy that they heard was a sing and snore Ernie doll of the Sesame Street Burton Ernie. It was a doll that would sing a song and snore when laying down and then say, I feel great, when you sat it up. Then on the other monitor, they heard a toy go off in my brother's room. It was ducks on a string that sang Easter Parade, and they thought that he was awake. And then all of a sudden, my brother and I started to scream at the exact same time. My mom ran into my brother's room to grab him as the ducks were still going off, and my dad ran into my room to grab me. While my dad was picking me up, he saw Ernie on the rocking chair, rocking himself saying, I feel great, I feel great, over and over again. And when he was picking me up, I said to him, something terrible is going to happen in my room tonight. So my dad picks me up, and he also picks up Ernie and throws him in the closet. My parents ran with my brother and me into their bedroom, and we all hid under the covers of their bed. They debated whether or not they should leave the house for the night, but they decided that we would be okay as long as we didn't go into my bedroom because I said that something terrible would happen in my room, not the whole house. Nothing ended up happening that night that they noticed. I was only about two or three years old when this occurred. We finally moved out of that house in October of 1999. We were not the only ones to experience strange things in the house. For example, while my grandparents were spending the night in the basement, they saw a person wearing a zoot suit walking outside the patio door at night. The next morning, my grandpa even asked my dad why he was walking around outside in a zoot suit at night. My uncle stayed in the basement one night, and the next morning, as my parents were making breakfast, he ran upstairs and out the door saying that he was too scared and would never spend the night there again. Family members weren't the only ones to have weird or scary experiences. Before we moved out, we had a going-away party, and almost everyone who spent any amount of time in the house had a really weird experience. Years later, my grandmother became friends with the mother of the man who built the house. They were having lunch when my grandma asked her friend if her son ever experienced anything paranormal in the house while he lived there. Her friend called her son on the spot to ask him, and he confirmed that yes, weird things also happened while he lived there. That probably explains why he was so eager to get out of the house and left all of his furniture. In fact, we also left all of the furniture except for the dining room set and the china cabinet. Once we moved out of the house, the light on the china cabinet stopped mysteriously turning on and we stopped having paranormal experiences. Thus concludes the tale of what we experienced in those few years of living in that haunted house in Michigan. After we moved out, my family started to call those events the Marshall Chronicles, and that is the name we still use when referring to the events of the haunted house. Immediately after moving out, my parents wrote down a list of all the weird experiences that we still have to this day. Thank you, Katie. Well, we've certainly got a lot going on here, and it does sound like paranormal things were happening. However, one of the things you learn when you take paranormal field investigation classes is that there's often stuff happening alongside the paranormal events that have normal causes. This happens because once the experience realize something paranormal may be happening, 
they naturally ask whether everything unusual that's happening may have a paranormal cause, but sometimes it doesn't. For example, in episode 260, we talked about the 21st century poltergeist case, in which a little boy in North Carolina was having anomalous effects on electronic devices. As we heard, when John Cruth investigated the case, he did observe the boy having effects on electrical devices that could not be normally explained. But he also found out that the garage door opener in the house was just broken. So the boy was not the cause of the malfunctions of the garage door opener. Applying that principle to this case, I wonder if some of the things that were experienced might have normal causes, like the brownout that occurred right after the family moved in. This was traced back to a break in one of the trunk lines to the house. The power company didn't know how it happened as it was under the driveway, but I wonder whether it could have been a defective line when it was installed, and then the heating and cooling that takes place in the Michigan climate may have helped break the connection even more, and possibly the heavy moving vehicles that were used to get the previous family out of the house and the new family into the house could have caused further damage, so that when the new family moved in, it started to cause a brownout. Similarly, I wonder if the knocking on the windows when they didn't see anybody outside could have been caused by an animal. And I wonder if the baby crying incident also could have been caused by an animal. Some animals sound like human babies crying. For example, the lyre bird makes a cry that sounds very much like a baby crying. Here's an example. <laughs> So, sound like a human baby much? The problem for, this, for it being a lyrebird is that lyrebirds are native to Australia, not Michigan, and they don't migrate. But there are North American animals that are also known for making cries that sound like human babies. For example, a bobcat can sound like this. And a porcupine can sound like this. And unlike lyrebirds, bobcats and porcupines are native to Michigan. So if I were to investigate this case, if I had been around at the time, I'd need to consider whether a bobcat or a porcupine got under the house. Uh, perhaps it was distressed, and its crying, when filtered through the floor, sounded like a human baby. But then it shut up and hid when the parents came to investigate. Similarly, some of the phenomena could have been misperceived, like Katie having night terrors when she said that something horrible would happen in her room and nothing did. Or the bolting of the garage doors being interpreted as a warning against going to Florida or as an attempt to trap the family when nothing happened on the way to Florida and the family wasn't trapped. They just needed to unbolt the doors. Maybe these got um, bolted and no one remembered they'd been bolted. 
On the other hand, there's lots of stuff going on in this account that can't be explained by normal causes or misperception. And the phenomena that are reported are location-specific. They occurred in this house, but not elsewhere. So it wasn't like there was a living person moving from one location to another and having the phenomena follow them, like in the 21st century poltergeist case, where the phenomena followed the boy from his own home to school to his friends' houses. Some of the phenomena, like seeing a woman or hearing children playing when it turned out these people weren't there, were non-communicative. You know, there weren't conversations with this woman or these children, in which case they might be hauntings or place memories. But other phenomena, like the apparition Katie saw of Marshall McGee or the middle kitchen track light going out whenever the parents discussed a ghost being in the house, seem to be communicative, in which case they might be apparitions. And there are cases, like the haunted house of Marin County, which we discussed in episode 210, where both hauntings and apparitions occur together. Both are also reported to be occurring on the USS Hornet, which I hope to discuss in a future episode. A strange thing is that the house doesn't sound like it had a long history. It had been built by the previous owner. And normally, hauntings and apparitions occur in places that have longer histories. Hauntings are supposed to be recordings laid down by people while they're still alive, and they're not that common, so they tend to happen in places with longer histories and where somebody lived for a long time. If I were doing an investigation, I'd just want to ask about how long the previous owner lived there, and if there was anybody in his family who did things that were like those that appeared in the non-communicative phenomena. Similarly, Apparitions tend to happen in the place where a person died, or at least a place that was meaningful to them. So I'd want to ask if anyone had died in the house during the previous owner's occupancy. If the answer to such questions was no, I'd want to ask what was on the property before the current house was built. Was there a previous home that might better fit these phenomena? Or could it have been a meeting place that would fit them? Or could some furniture have been transferred into the home from a place that did better fit them? Anyway, this report has a lot going on in it, and it's really fascinating. Our final experience for today comes from a listener named Jason. He says, When I was about 17 years old in 1999, a friend and I were driving around on desolate county roads in northwestern Indiana. It was a weekday night, and both of us had recently finished high school and enjoyed each other's company a lot. We pass a lot of time driving around in spotlighting animals for fun. Spotlighting is just shining a bright light on the animals. We did this because my friend was teaching me things about deer so I could start hunting with him. It was also a good way of spending time together when you're not quite 18 and nowhere near 21. I was driving a 5-speed manual transmission Jeep, and we were using a spotlight that plugged into the cigarette lighter. It had a coiled cord and a button to press to activate the light. It was something like 500,000 or a million candle power spotlight, which was blindingly bright and could light up a field for 100 yards or better. Normally, we'd be driving along a desolate stretch of road, catch the reflection of an animal's eyes from the headlights, I'd stop the car, and we'd turn on the spotlight and scan the field. We'd count the deer, watch them, maybe spook them into running, and sometimes keep a tally. Usually, we saw deer, but also some smaller animals like raccoons or possums. 
This particular night, my buddy was riding shotgun. Without a shotgun, only the spotlight. And we were talking when we saw the most unusual thing we've both ever seen. In the road, at the height of an animal, was a pair of shining cobalt blue eyes. They were a few feet above the surface of the paved two-lane country road. It's hard to judge distance more than 20 years later, but the eyes were just at the limits of the distance of the bright headlights on 1993 Jeep Wrangler, maybe 10 or 20 yards. Though we saw them at the same time, my friend verbally reacted first and said, What is that? Speed up! Speed up! We were both intrigued at what kind of animal it was, reflecting such a piercing blue color. At this point, I needed to manually downshift to speed up. I was in third gear and needed to get into second gear, but instead put it into fourth gear in the excitement of the moment. This bogged down the engine and it slowed down. As this was happening, we never took our eyes off the cobalt blue eyes, which didn't stop interacting with your environment. That is to say, they were moving in a normal way. They weren't still. They weren't being erratic. As I was in the wrong gear, the eyes stopped in the road. Then, incredibly, the lighted eyes raised up from the surface of the road to approximately the height of a man or higher. What was first unusual, because the unique blue light the eyes reflected was now inexplicable, because whatever it was had gone from the height of an animal crossing the road to the height of a man. The eyes then seemed to begin a decision-making process. It looked to our left, its right, and then to our right, which I took as a sign of intelligence, and in trying to decide whether it would continue to go where it intended to go or return back to where it came. This presumed turning of its head was apparent from the spacing of the eyes as it turned. In other words, if they were two inches apart as it looked at us, as it turned away from us, they got closer together as it turned to look in either direction. The eyes looked left, right, and left again. At this point, we were speeding up the vehicle and swearing in disbelief, and then, as we were about to gain on the eyes and be in a position to see what it was, they bounded off in the direction from where it had originally appeared. I know it bounded off because the eyes bounced or moved across the road, just as you'd expect if a man was moving across the road in a rush. The eyes bounced up and down with its hurried gait. From start to finish, the encounter was seconds. Just as I had recovered the vehicle engine without stalling it, it was over. We stopped the car in that spot and spotlighted the fields but saw nothing. Whatever it was had run away without a trace. We told everyone we knew who might care, but of course no one could explain what we saw. We both remember this incident to this day with a few differences, but generally the same. Later, I returned to the same location in the daylight. The road had a ditch on the side from where the eyes came, with a fence on the side of the ditch furthest from the road. There was also a street sign that we could use to gauge the height of the eyes. From the bottom of the ditch to the top of the fence that the eyes would have had to jump over was more than the height of a man, and probably eight feet. The street sign was also around eight feet off the ground. Since that day, our spotlighting continued for another eight months or so, on and off, as it had in the past, until we got jobs and more responsibilities. We have never seen anything like that before or since. We have never seen blue eyes reflect on any animal. We could not explain what we saw, but given the height of the eyes off the road and the impossible leap it made, coupled with a seemingly intelligent decision-making process, we believed it was, absent a better explanation, a Bigfoot although my friend's wily father said it was a werewolf, which we thought was funny. I've never been able to satisfy myself with an explanation for what I saw. The region has zero Bigfoot sightings, as far as I can tell. Thanks, Jason. 
one of the things that we need to say is that we need to be careful with some of the distances that are mentioned in the account. Humans often are not good at estimating distances in the daytime, and that's even more true in the dark because of our poor night vision that our species has. Jason and his buddy did a good thing by coming back to the location in the daytime and checking out the size of things, but we should still be careful about exact measurements because of the difficulty of determining scale in the dark. Now, the phenomenon that Jason refers to is known as eye shine. You see it, for example, with cats and dogs when their eyes seem to glow in the dark. The phenomenon is called by a membrane at the back of the eye in some animals. The membrane is called the tapetum lucidum, which is Latin for the bright tapestry. It's a layer of tissue behind the retina, and its function is to catch light and reflect it back into the retina to help the animal see better in the dark. Humans don't have this structure, which is why our eyes don't glow in the dark and why we're not as good as some animals at seeing in the dark. But then we don't need to because our ginormous brains help keep us safe in the dark. The color of the light that the tapetum lucidum reflects varies from one animal to another, and there are some animals that have blue eye shine. Among them, they include some domestic dogs, horses, woodchucks, and pine martens. In fact, pine martens have electric blue eye shine, which could count for the unusual quality that Jason and his friends saw. However, pine martens are low to the ground, and unless there was a tree in the middle of the road that the pine marten could leap up into, it wouldn't be a good fit for this experience. Of course, since we don't currently have a voucher specimen of a Bigfoot, we can't know what kind of tapetum lucidum they might have or what color eye shine they would have. A challenge for the Bigfoot explanation would be why the creature's eyes seemed low to the road and then shot up to the height of a man or taller. Bigfoots are not normally reported with their heads low down to the ground like that, so unless this was a supernatural Bigfoot that suddenly grew in size, it wouldn't sound like this was characteristic behavior for the creature, at least as it's been reported. The motion of the eyes from low to high is consistent, though, with two known animal behaviors that I can think of. One is when an animal is normally close to the ground, but then raises itself up on its haunches or hind legs to get a better look at something. For example, bears do this. The other behavior is when an animal sometimes lowers its head, for example, to graze or eat, and then, or sniff something on the ground, and then it raises its head to study things in the distance that might be dangerous. And horses do both of those things. So, since horses can have blue eye shine, one possibility that occurs to me is that it could have been a horse that originally had its head lowered and then it raised its head to study the oncoming jeep. The challenge I would pose to this explanation has to do with the placement of the horse's eyes. You also might have got some sense of its body shape, but you don't mention that, so I can't really explore that one. But horses are herbivores or plant eaters whose survival strategy is running away from things. As a result, they need to have a good view of the space around their bodies, and so they have eyes that are primarily side-mounted, whereas animals that hunt, including carnivores like wolves, big cats, and birds of prey, 
or omnivores like humans and dogs need a good view of the area in front of them where their prey will be. So we have front-mounted eyes to better lock in on and track the things that we hunt. And we don't need side-mounted eyes because our survival strategy isn't based on running away from sources of danger. As hunters, we can stand and fight because hunters are good at killing things. Based on Jason's description, it sounds like the eyes that they saw were front-mounted. He describes them as appearing to be just a couple of inches apart, like a human's eyes. However, if you look at a horse's head straight on, you can't see both of its eyes. So if I were investigating this case, I would ask more about the experience and see if what they saw might be explained by a horse with blue eye shine that initially had its head tilted down, then it raised it and then bounded away. Horses are also, I should note, good at leaping over things. If that wasn't possible, I'd wonder if it might have been a bear. Bears are responsible for a lot of Bigfoot reports, and bears do often walk on all fours, keeping their heads low, but then stand up to get a better look at things, and they can even walk on two legs. What's harder to fit with the bear hypothesis is that bears don't normally have blue eye shine, but Perhaps it was a bear that was in, in ill health or that had a genetic mutation or something. So, I don't presently have a good theory that explains everything Jason and his friends saw. These are some of the possibilities that occurred to me and that I'd want to ask about, but I can't fully eliminate the Bigfoot hypothesis. And those are all of the experiences that we have time for today. Jimmy, is there anything else we should say before we go? I want to say thank you to all the listeners who sent in their experiences. If you didn't hear yours, don't worry. I'm saving it for a future episode. I found all of the experiences that people sent in very interesting, and except for the ones that had audio or video and the one that I personally investigated, today's selection was basically a random sample of what people sent in, so there are a lot of really interesting stories still to tell. I also want to thank the patrons of Mysterious World for supporting us over the last five years. You make the show possible, and with your help, we'll be able to continue for more years. If you haven't yet become a patron, please consider doing so, or if you can afford it, please consider raising your patron level. Uh, you can go to sqpn.com slash give and uh, see how you can help support the show and help it keep going into the future. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on our fifth anniversary? We live in a mysterious world, and the experiences of our listeners uh, only further illustrate the mysterious nature of that world. We've been talking about these mysteries for five years, and we're not even close to having discussed them all. I keep a spreadsheet of topics for future shows, and right now, the big list has over 2,000 topics on it, and we've covered less than 300 of those. So thank you to all the listeners who have supported us for the last five years, and here's to the next five years, and hopefully many more. And Jimmy, what further resources can you offer to the listeners? We'll have links to the two-volume set from the uh, Society for Psychical Research, Phantasms of the Living, also Louisa Ryan's book, Hidden Channels of the Mind, Sally Ryan Feather's book, The Gift, ESP, The Extraordinary Experiences of Ordinary People. We'll also have links to videos of a lyrebird sounding like a baby, 
a bobcat sounding like a baby and a porcupine sounding like a baby, as long as information about the tapetum lucidum and a classification of different types of eye shine by color and what animals have those colors. And that does it for us this time. We would love to hear your theories about the mysterious experiences from listeners that we discussed here. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they do on this episode and other episodes of Mysterious World. Uh, They're available for hire, so if you have video or animation or design needs, check them out. Uh, You can go to their website, and you can also see examples of what they do by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I really hope that you'll uh, like the video, which tells YouTube that you liked it, and therefore other people might like it, so it'll show it to other people as well. Um, Also, I am trying to grow my channel. We recently passed 40,000 subscribers. Yay! And now 50,000 is the next goal, so please help us get there. Uh, by subscribing and be sure you hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I put up a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I put up. And Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be doing our very first episode about Freemasonry. We've had a lot of requests to cover Freemasonry, and I've planned to cover it for a long time. In fact, I'm planning to do a series of episodes about Freemasonry, not all in a row, but over the course of time. So next week, we'll be talking about a startling event that occurred in the 1880s and 1890s when a Frenchman who had been a Freemason converted to Catholicism and wrote a series of books exposing Masonic secrets. His revelations were startling, and they were very much appreciated by high Catholic churchmen, including Pope Leo XIII himself. So you'll want to hear what Leo XIII appreciated so much about his revelations on Freemasonry. Interesting. Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at Mysterious.fm slash 271. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit SQPN.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash stargate.